Here's the thing though. another episode of our podcast here's the thing though my name is Saliha and I'm your host for today I'm here with my producer slash editor Mitch Price hello before we begin we'd like to acknowledge the Darug and Kuringai people who are the traditional owners of the land that we are recording on today today is invasion day and we want to extend our respect love and support to all First Nations people past present and future on this day of mourning as we say every week we are recording on stolen land and sovereignty was never ceded This country is illegally occupied. Mitch and I are settlers on this land and we actively benefit from the displacement, dehumanisation and genocide of First Nations people daily. And we will work every day to decolonise ourselves and this land and stand strong in our allyship to First Nations people. Always was, always will be Aboriginal land. So Mitch, how's it going? How's your week been? Um, I am incredibly tired. I'm just I'm so exhausted after after the, the the day we've had. So if I don't say anything intelligent, uh, that's probably why. Um, and if you think I normally don't say anything intelligent, then I guess it's just business as usual today. <laughs> oh no! <laughs> <laughs> how how are you? How have you been? How has your day been? My my week has been good. I've seen my family a lot, which has actually been really nice. I spent a lot of time with my family. Um, today was really good. Um, it's Invasion Day. As I mentioned earlier, we had a pretty early morning because we went to the 9am protest in Sydney and it just like took longer than I thought it would to get there because of public holiday transport and stuff. So we were just like up way earlier than we wanted to be. <laughs> um, we're a bit tired because we're like, we're recording in the evening now. We're kind of recording like pretty much at night and it's just probably a mistake on our part to start this late. But you know what? It's been a busy day. We um, went to the protest today and it was really hot, um, but really good. The speakers were amazing. We're actually going to talk a lot about that for like maybe the first, third half of the podcast today, just some follow-up, because last week's episode uh, was on Australia Day or specifically why Australia Day shouldn't exist. And we got a lot of good feedback for that episode, a lot of people sharing it, a lot of people talking about it. So we thought we would do like follow up on like what actually happened today and some of the kind of politics around this year's invasion day in particular. So I guess that's that's how I'll start I'll start our episode with that. Um because I mean even just the lead up to the invasion day protest today has been chaotic. Uh, they always are with like police constantly threatening violence every year. It was the same last year as well I remember going to the invasion day protest which was massive by the way. Like tens of thousands of people were there in Sydney. Um, and the police are always there in their riot gear with their horses telling everybody that if you're there, we're gonna, you know, here's a drama that's going to happen, blah, 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 lots of violent threats, lots of intimidation. But obviously this year, given COVID, um, the violence was something people were quite worried about because of the public health orders going on at the moment in Sydney. Uh, outdoor gatherings, like just regular outdoor gatherings have a max attendance of 30 people. And for like protests and stuff, I think the maximum we were allowed for this protest was 500 people, uh, which is ridiculous given the fact that, like, the cricket just, you know, a few days ago or a week ago had, like, 10,000 or were allowed 10,000 people in attendance. Uh, but for some reason, I mean, we know why uh, a First Nations protest was not extended the same respect. So there's been a lot of politics around that. There's been a lot of commentary by, like, conservative journalists and the police commissioner, uh, and the New South Wales uh, Minister for the Police, 
etc etc there was something that i read the other day that really quite enraged me and i wanted to bring it up so the new south wales police minister david elliot actually like said quote i will read the quote to you I can't believe any organisation, let alone one that pretends to advocate for Indigenous rights, would say, let's put aside the risk of COVID-19, let's breach public health orders, let's get together despite the pleas of the community asking them not to get together. He also said, Indigenous Australians, we know, from historical collection of data, are quite vulnerable when it comes to these types of diseases. Obviously, there has been a lot of outrage in regards to these comments, specifically because of, like, just the fake concern, like, just the assumption, like, this police commissioner does not give a fuck about Aboriginal welfare. To pretend and use Aboriginal health and use statistics of Aboriginal health against them is fucking evil. And it was brought up today at the Invasion Day rally. We'll add a recording uh, in the pod of Tamika Tai, who pretty much calls David Elliott out in a really wonderful way <laughs> at the protest for his fake concern. Now. They have no jurisdiction here and they will not harm black bodies today. And if David Elliott, the Minister of New South Wales Police, gave a fuck about black people, he would give justice to the 440 Aboriginal lives that have died in custody. And that's exactly it, right? The absolute fucking audacity to, like, talk about Aboriginal health when, like, this man is, you know, the leader of a group of people that, you know, spend their careers murdering Aboriginal people, like, as if a huge reason for all these protests isn't, like, black deaths in custody. I feel like a lot of Indigenous people are probably, like, more scared of cops than COVID. So it's just tone-deaf, offensive. It's just this performative paternalism you know this fake oh i just really care about you guys and you know i mean look at your health statistics and i just actually want to bring something up because there's there's actually something a lot more insidious going on uh about this i've been noticed trend with conservative people co-opting aboriginal health statistics to force them into like submission you know this like kind of thing to control and dominate aboriginal groups by bringing up their own health and their own needs and using it against them i feel like it's a modern day repetition of the rhetoric of like colonizers you know during stolen generations when they're like oh we stole these children away from their parents because we're protecting them we're looking after them they're going to be safer with us like this constant weaponizing of aboriginal welfare aboriginal like like health in order to subjugate the group by like assuming you know what's best for them it's actually like disgusting and i was surprised because i mean not surprised that david elliott said that because we all know he's a fuckwit but it's more just like surprised at the lack of commentary on that particular element of this because yes it's hypocritical and disingenuous and just like we know he's just talking out of his ass because obviously we all know he doesn't give a fuck about aboriginal people but like we also need to talk about the growing rhetoric that conservative people are using about first nations people where they're using their health against them because it's actually becoming a pattern and it's really really insidious i think because it starts to like become this creepy paternalistic thing where like white people know what's best first nations people and we already know what road that goes down it's already happened it's happening right now um and i did want to flag that with you guys because i think it's really important to be critical of the way that a lot of white racist people or just i mean conservatives in general like tend to talk about indigenous people as if they don't have their own autonomy feelings thoughts emotions culture everything you know as if Aboriginal people aren't people as if they're like babies or children or pets it's 
fucked up. I also think it's amusing to mention that David Elliott is the the same police minister who said that he'd be happy for his children to be strip searched. So, I mean, he just has a history of just being a piece of shit. So, yeah. I know, it's shocking. It's like, oh, I care about people so much. Okay, but once it's strip searched children, thinks it's okay for police to use violence against, like, youth and Aboriginal people. Anyway, I mean, there's no reason to waste more oxygen on this man. But just so you know, he's fuckwit. Moving on from that, you know, obvious fucking bullshit... The speeches, though, at the Invasion Day rally were amazing. There was there were so many, like, young women speaking that were just so empowering. Like, there was so much power and fire and, like, just rage at the system. And it was so infectious. And it was, so, like, that mixed with, like, pride and, like, just so much faith in one's own ability. It was amazing. And it was so beautiful seeing, like all these people getting up there and talking and like you can feel power like radiating off them. There was a 17-year-old speaking, Shania Donovan, uh, and when she was speaking, like the crowd was just so amazed and inspired by her. Everything she said, I was like, go off, sis. Like I've never felt so like empowered and just ready to like start a fight in my life. And then she mentioned that she's 17 and she hasn't even graduated yet. And I was like, What? Like, incredible, incredible to see, like, I mean, she's practically a kid. Like, kids these days just being so political and so ready to take on the world. And I was just just looking at her and I was like, the kids are all right. The kids are fucking all right. (laughs) I'm getting goosebumps just, like, recalling it. It was fantastic. She was incredible. Like, for those of you who haven't any, watched any videos or listened to her, if you weren't there, like, I highly recommend looking up some of the quotes and things because it was just Fucking amazing. Goosebumps the whole time. I also wanted to mention something that I loved and I think is relevant is that most most of the speakers were women. Most of the speakers were young women. And it's just, I feel like, a real statement. It's a real statement. It's a real rejection of a lot of, like, targeted Western kind of narratives about marginalised groups being just misogynistic as a reason to subjugate them. Uh, one thing I wanted to mention that I didn't really like at the protest was actually... Uh, David Shrewbridge's speech at the end. David Shrewbridge is a Greens MP. He's a white man. I actually normally really love the stuff that he has to say. Like, he's very progressive um, and he's always fighting for, like, the same causes that we are, but, you know, in a parliamentary way. But he's pretty good. And, like, even when he spoke last year at the Invasion Day rally, and he speaks at, like, every rally. He's at, like, every rally. And he's normally got really good things to say, but I was just, like, really not impressed with what he had to say um today because i just felt like his speech at the end kind of undermined all the speeches preceding him that were by first nations people there was just this idea of like trying to tame the radical energy that was coming off and like the speeches were radical we'll insert an audio of lizzie jarrett who is like calling for revolution you know like full radical amazing left-wing politics like that's how that was the vibe it's incredible hey everyone uh this is mitch from the future just jumping in for a second because we accidentally mixed up our audio and incorrectly identified the speaker just now as lizzie jarrett when actually it was linda june co uh we're really sorry for that it was really irresponsible on our part and thank you to amanda for correcting us so anyways on with the show now, going forward as a nation, and I've been having this yarn for the last 10 years, every single movement in this country, whether it be environmental justice, climate justice, abolish prisons, 
child removal. Every issue in this country needs to unite. We need to come together under one cause, and that is to abolish this system. I'm talking about a revolution. We need to revolt. But in order for that to happen, we need to organise and we need to come together first. Which, okay, obviously that was amazing. And then... David Tribbage comes up and he's like talking to the crowd and he's like, you know, I'm so, I'm so proud of you guys being here. You know, we're all allies. It, start, it started really good. And then it kind of moves into like, but you know what? We're not the revolutionaries that the media says we are. We're peaceful protesters. We, you know, we, we do our change in parliament. And I was like, um, that's not true. And actually, that's just against what everybody else just said. Like all the other like speakers are talking about like radical change and revolution and this man is out here being like, no, 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 no revolution, guys. No revolution. <laughs> no, no, I'm still in the parliament, guys. Yeah, like he was talking about, you know, gesturing towards the, the dysfunctional workplace, you know, that this is the, the New South Wales parliament. Uh, but still, I guess, claiming that this is going to be, at least through him, the avenue that change is going to happen, which undermines everything that we heard before, which was truly radical shit about organizing, that we need uh, a worker's state, all that stuff. And then David Shoebridge, who I normally think is... Uh, a good speaker and add some legitimacy that the that the media can can cling on to, uh, just sort of undermining that. And I thought that was really sad. Yeah, it was really disappointing, and like especially because acting like change is in the parliament is fucking ridiculous. When we're literally at a First Nations protest about how the government has fucked over Indigenous people, like the goal of protesting is to is not to create inquiries. That's something that he said. He was like, you know, last time we had a big Black Lives Matter protest, like we created real change. We passed, like I individually passed a motion to open an inquiry into blah blah blah. And I was just thinking, like, who gives a fuck about an inquiry? There's been like a million inquiries. They don't do anything. Like we're like speakers before him have just talked about the fact that that this has happened. There's been inquiries. We've done this. We've done that. We've tried to pass it, and nothing has worked. Because the system is broken. We're going to add um, a quote in just now from Ian Brown saying exactly that. When I'm talking about sovereignty, I'm talking about sovereign agencies. I'm talking about self-determination and what that truly means to Indigenous people, especially here along the East Coast. We will first contact people along this East Coast and we still are affected by the ongoing threats of colonisation. The system is not broken. The system is doing exactly what it's set out to do. And I wanted to put that in because it illustrates the radical nature of what we're talking about, that we want to abolish the system. We want to give land back to its rightful owners. And then, like, David Shoebridge is out here talking about, like, the parliament and inquiries at the end of a really radical protest it just doesn't make sense and also it's quite unlike him to be honest it just doesn't make sense and i felt like he was telling radical angry protesters that we got that we're actually nice and quiet and peaceful like he was projecting this idea of calm onto us to make sure we don't get too rowdy and look maybe that's just like maybe that's not true in terms of what his intentions were but it definitely felt like that as an audience member and it seems that a few people around us also kind of felt it was a bit off the mark he was being too like bureaucratic 
and his approach to the situation when everyone before him is like, fuck the government, fuck the police, fuck the parliament. Like, we want to put the governance of this land back into First Nations people's hands. So who the fuck is... Who cares about an inquiry? Exactly. I mean, as we saw, these people... Uh, these speakers don't need anyone to speak for them because they did an absolutely um, an amazing job. Every single speaker was so strong and so concise. So if he's not there to reiterate that sentiment, then why the fuck is he there? Yeah, it was strange. And it just it did kind of just feel like a white man standing up and just speaking for the sake of like the media. Like it just felt like some PR damage control because things were getting like in a, in like a verbal sense, pretty radical. I mean, the protest was very calm in the sense that we were all sitting cross-legged on the ground in a very wholesome kindergarten school kind of way. But like, I feel like because the media is recording what's happening and they're going to broadcast some of this, they are going to broadcast what he said and he really watered down the radical sentiments of the protest. And I didn't like that because we were actually getting somewhere. And now it's just, you know, this is, I feel like this is the problem with some like, like lowercase liberal, not like liberal party liberal, but just like some liberal kind of left-wing activists. It's like they're so pro-rights and movement, but the moment we kind of shift away from government into like radical worker kind of revolution, they they like disappear or they like changed the statement. And I'm just like, oh, I don't know. I don't agree with this. But yeah, that was that was my um my uncomfortable moment. I would, if any of you were at um the Sydney protest, I would love to hear your thoughts on that, to be honest, because it's also one of those things where like, I don't know if everybody else perceived it that way, but it definitely felt that way to me. And I would love to hear your thoughts. Uh, when we put this up, I'll put a Facebook thread up. Please let us know what you felt about David Shubridge's, uh speech. So, yeah, the protest was just like, it was like amazing in the sense that I felt so alive you know, for the first time in a long time. Uh, I was a bit disappointed that we didn't get to march, but I completely understand why we didn't get to march. Basically, the cops were threatening intense violence. Um, if you look at the National Indigenous Times... There's, there's an article on there that uh, mentions that some of the organisers were saying that the police were like going to smash him and like bash him up and stuff um, if they went ahead with the march. There was like threats of violence. And obviously for a First Nations community that is like constantly being fucking abused and harassed and murdered by cops, they're not about to start some shit with cops. So they kind of came to an agreement where the cops wouldn't interfere with the like speeches and the protests and, and then there would be no march. It's kind of like... I guess, like a middle ground, which was like, I mean, fucked in the sense that First Nations people should be allowed to march. We should all be allowed to march. Like, what the fuck is the point of living in a democracy, quote unquote, free country, whatever you want to call it, uh, if we can't even march? But yeah, that was disappointing. Um, But yeah, I get it. Obviously, I don't want there to be police targeting of First Nations people. Yeah, exactly. I mean, like you, I was also disappointed that we didn't march because I feel like marches can be such a fundamental part you know, of the protest, a real sense of, of unity and purpose. But I also know that if we did march, it wouldn't be people like me bearing the brunt of that police force. And if the, if the, the organizers don't want you to march, you know, I'm going to be doing exactly what they want because this is their, their protest and their moment. Exactly. And speaking of that, there actually were some people who tried to march uh, against the orders of the people that organised the protest uh, and they were promptly arrested, unfortunately. Because, I mean, look, I don't agree with the fact that they marched. Like, I get that you want to be radical and I totally want to be too, but you are, you have to think about the collateral damage around you. Like, you cannot be provoking the police in the presence of First Nations people because they you are putting them in danger. 
Like you are putting the people around you in danger. You are going to slander a movement that is finally picking up the momentum that it deserves. Like don't fuck this up for everybody else, especially because quite a few people who tend to do that tend to be white. It tends to be like white people coming in looking for like a political fight. And I look, I respect the rage against the state. I respect it. You want to fight a cop. You want to do that shit. That is like your like do it. Sure. But, like, don't fucking do it around marginalized groups that are going to face consequences for your behavior. You might be fine afterwards. They are not going to be fine afterwards. Don't fucking provoke the cops around First Nations people. That is fucked up. That is selfish. Your moment that you're looking for, your little moment of justice does not outweigh, like, First Nations people's justice and their moment. And today was their moment. So everyone else just needs to shut the fuck up. Seriously. The thing about these left-wing protests is that they really come from a place of empathy and love. I mean, one of the organizers said, you know, when you go home today, love yourself and be proud of yourself for what you've done. And it really comes from wanting the world to be a better place, which you can completely contrast with right-wing protests, which come often from a place of, of hatred and supremacy, which we saw exactly a few weeks ago at the, the Capitol riots. I feel like that's a good segue to get into the second half of our podcast today. I know the structure is a little bit different than usual. We've kind of done two halves of two different topics, but I think it, I think it works. I think it works. We're going with it. Uh, so today's topic, aside from all that very long follow-up, is actually about the capital riots, not just what happened uh, during the riots, but the aftermath as well. The way the political tensions have shifted, the way that like bureaucracy and like the government and you know Joe Biden and whatnot are actually dealing with that, and what it kind of means for the future, and especially when it comes to domestic terrorism, I think is really important and like right wing conspiracies because that shit is getting real very fast. So let's get into it. As many of you know, on the 6th of January, Trump's protest slash rally thing, I don't even know what to call it, went out of control and his supporters ended up literally storming the Capitol building in Washington, D.C., while Congress were there counting votes to confirm Joe Biden's presidency. I mean, it was they already knew the numbers, but it was like a formality. It was supposed to be a boring event, uh, but that is not what happened. It was actually quite terrifying these right-wing people like stormed the building trashed it there was a lot of dramas between um the cops and them and not the way you would expect uh and even just the photos like coming out of this event are honestly apocalyptic like there are images of like uh the rioters literally scaling the wall to get in and it looks like a fucking zombie apocalypse like it looks like there's zombie videos when you see the zombies like climbing up the wall to like get to people it's freaky as fuck Eventually, law enforcement did get it under control. Uh, There was a curfew implemented. There were five deaths and like 50-something injuries, but it was pretty fucking chaotic. And it's thrown like not just American politics, but world politics into a lot of discussions and debates that I find very interesting. The first one, and I think the most obvious one, and the most immediate one was about the relationship between police and the rioters, there have been there's been a lot of hysteria, understandably so, because there's like actual like footage of police like helping the rioters. There's a TikTok video that's gone viral. It's on news.com.au of like police literally just opening the gate and letting rioters in, and like the rioters are like laughing and like shoulder bumping them and stuff, and it just seems like they're having a jolly good time. Um, and then there's been other claims about like police taking selfies, which is true. 
Uh, police were definitely taking selfies with rioters, but there's some contention about this particular one. Uh, Mitch was telling me earlier that apparently this is like a thing cops do at a lot of riots for like. Uh, Appar- con- apparently, it's a de-escalation technique to uh, to neutralize a hostile, but take that with a grain of salt. Yeah, I just feel like that's a pretty fucking convenient <laughs> excuse to explain why cops were taking selfies with rioters. Because what I noticed about that is like when you go to a Black Lives Matter protest. Your instinct is not to take photos with cops because you don't see them as your friend. But when, like, these people at these protests, they actually see cops as their friends, like, their buddies. They just let each other in, like, they're one of they're one of each other. And the police response was really delayed. There were claims by the police that they actually just had, they were so underprepared. You know, they just had no idea that this was going to happen. And there's been a lot of frustration and anger about that because it was premeditated, as far as most of us are aware, like... Even before it happened, I was, like, on socials and I was seeing, like, tweets and Instagram posts everywhere about, you know, I'm I'm locking my doors and staying on side on January 6th and blah, blah, blah. And, like, there was so much fear among marginalised communities on that day because we all knew what was coming. Like, these things were premeditated. There are actually articles at the moment. Uh, there's an ABC one, I think, that, like, talks about the fact that there's proof that at least some of this was premeditated and actually organised by the grassroots campaigners under Trump. Whether or not Trump organized it is a whole other debate, but there is definite it's definite that like it was premeditated. Like people came and like brought their weaponry and like people traveled like through several states to come to this thing and fuck shit up. Like there are people bragging on social media about their behavior um at the riot and what they did and posting selfies of them like, you know, destroying like deaths and statues and artworks and whatever. Um it was very much like a calculated and planned event and I'd probably call it a domestic terrorist attack. That's kind of what it was. Like, they they only were there to intimidate and strike fear. It was an attempted coup in the name of Donald Trump. Like, they were trying to deny Joe Biden presidency despite having lost the election. They were going to take over by brute force. This is the kind of shit that the US uses as an excuse to invade the Middle East and, like, South America. Like, this is when they go and they, like, stage coups in, like, Venezuela and, like, other socialist countries. Or they go and they, like, station their people in Afghanistan and Iraq because, oh, we're just, we're just keeping the peace and democracy. Like, we're just maintaining and protecting democracy. And then in their own fucking country, like, democracy doesn't exist. It doesn't exist. That was, like, not that America is democratic, but that was a very active attack on democracy. And the cops were underprepared, didn't do shit. Um, and then, like, befriended rioters. There's an audio that we're going to include uh, right now by Joy Ann Reed as she's talking about just the white power, the white entitlement that came with that riot, which I think really sums up kind of my feelings on the hypocrisy of it all and what a lot of people are thinking about the way cops handled these rioters compared to how they handled Black Lives Matter protesters, despite the difference in violence and the fact that one of them is a fucking terrorist walls of our capital, our property, going inside the capital, sitting in uh, Speaker Pelosi's office, casually take pictures of themselves, have that played on Fox News, they know that they are not in jeopardy because the cops are taking selfies with them, walking them down the steps to make sure they're not hurt, taking care with their bodies, not like they treated Freddie Gray's body. White Americans aren't afraid of the cops. White Americans are never afraid of the cops, even when they're committing insurrection. 
even when they're engaged in attempting to occupy our capital to steal the votes of people who look like me. Because in their minds, they own this country, they own that capital, they own the cops, the cops work for them, and people like me have no damn right to try to elect a president. Because we don't get to pick the president, they get to pick the president, they own the president, they own the White House, they own this country. And so when you think you own it, you own the place, you ain't afraid of the police, because the police are you, and the police reflect back to them. We're with you, you're good, we're not gonna hurt you, because you're not them. Guarantee you if that was a Black Lives Matter protest in DC, there would already be people shackled, arrested, or dead. Shackled, arrested, en masse, or dead. Get a, a Brittany Packnett Cunningham on here. She'll tell you how they treated her in Ferguson. Put Alicia Garza on here. She'll tell you how they treated her at every Black Lives Matter march. Get Patrice Cullors on. They'll tell you. They'll tell you what it feels like to protest peacefully and unarmed and have how the police will treat you if you're black. That's it. They're not afraid of the cops because they know the cops are cool with it. I mean, she really says it so succinctly, but it's the truth. You know, if we were at, like, at Black Lives Matter protests, people were killed like all the time. There was a new fucking death every day. Most of the activists that led the um, 2014 Black Lives Matter uh, protests uh, after Mike Brown died were literally like suspiciously found dead, like in the trunk of cars, their bodies thrown in lakes. It was horrific and it was like calculated. And there's many, many claims by black other black activists, other prominent black activists about being tracked and stalked and harassed and, and intimidated by police and threatened by police only to have them turn up dead later. Like, this seems to be state-sanctioned genocide. And on the flip side, you got, like, entitled white people literally storming a capital and they were, like, they were, like threatening to murder um, AOC. Like, it was, like, these are hate crimes. These are fucking hate crimes. This is terrorism. This... This is insurrection. This is sedition. And the cops are like, oh, you know, please don't break the paintings. Guys, come on. Like, please, guys. The fact that only one woman or one person uh, died of police violence, considering this is America, the numbers are so fucking low. Like, so low. And this is probably, like, the most violent kind of thing to happen in America in a very long time if we're going to talk about, like, riots. It's just ridiculous. It's actually just ridiculous. And the outrage... I mean, it's not lost on the world. It's not just us being outraged. It's like, like everybody knows how fucked America is, but like this last demonstration and the way the police responded to it has kind of hit the nail into the coffin a little bit. Like I think people are just like, yeah, I'm fucking done. Like I'm done. The police themselves claimed after the TikTok video of cops opening the gates uh, went viral that rioters used quote unquote chemical irritants on them uh, to coerce them into opening the gates but if you watch the videos they're looking pretty chummy and also like chemical ir- like what chemical irritant like they're not even giving specifics but like what's interesting now because while this is like extraordinary and shocking it's not necessarily interesting it's pretty old like information none of this is new to us we know that this country that country is built on white supremacy um but what i want to kind of really dive into is the response to the situation So Joe Biden, on his second day of presidency, announced like a new kind of investigation into the way uh, domestic terrorism is kind of talked about in the parliament. He's doing like a new assessment of domestic terrorism laws. And there's been a lot of talk among him and other commentators about like really cracking down on domestic terrorism, you know, potentially introducing new laws to control it. But I think something that we really need to discuss 
is like who that impacts and who we're talking about when we talk about domestic terrorism. Because, I mean, let's even discuss the terminology used in a lot of the articles. I have done a lot of research on this capital thing. I've got so many tabs open, just reading article after article after article about how they explained what happened at the Capitol. And almost none of them actually call the rioters terrorists, right? They call them rioters. Uh, they call them insurgents. They call them protesters. Some even just refer to them simply as Trump supporters. You know, they're just they're just Trump supporters. Like, that's what they are. Um, and I find it very interesting that even articles that are literally about domestic terrorism in the wake of the Capitol takeover, like these articles are literally about the fact that there may be potential legislation and changes in the way the government is running to tackle domestic terrorism, specifically in relation to the Capitol, never actually use the word terrorism or terrorist referring to the people who stormed the Capitol. And it's like, how are you saying that this led to and like a discussion on domestic terrorism but not calling them terrorists? There is just this really innate refusal, absolute refusal to view white people as terrorists. Even when they are doing literally textbook what terrorism is, it's like inciting terror for ideological purposes, which is what they're doing. Um, and it's just, I mean, it's fucking unsurprising to Muslim people like me. I mean, we know it even in Australia, like the amount of times we've had white people pose a danger to society and they're just like mentally ill or, you know, they're just lone wolves. I mean, the Christchurch terrorist, he's off, He's almost never referred to as a terrorist. People are calling this man the Christchurch shooter as if he didn't fucking murder, like, 55 Muslim people um, on an ideological basis. He's a terrorist. And, like, there seems to be this idea that we, we don't really say terrorist unless they're actually indicted of terrorism, but you can fucking say terrorist. The same way that, like, if you see a video of somebody murdering somebody, they're a murderer. Like, you don't really need the court process to let you know that. And domestic terrorism despite being suddenly topical in America, has always been an issue over there. Pre-capital, if we actually, like, talk about who the fuck is a terrorist. Because just recently, there was a shooting at a synagogue in America not that long ago, it was a few weeks ago. And there are constantly racially and religiously motivated shootings and attacks by extremists in America, right-wing extremists, white supremacist extremists, targeting black people, targeting Jewish people, targeting gay people um, in America. And all of those are just shootings. They're not terrorist attacks and it's like this this domestic terrorism thing it's not new we just don't call attacks by white people terrorism we just don't think white people are capable of terrorism because white people are the state and terrorism is counter state and white supremacy is not counter state it is a state therefore it's not terrorism there's so many fucking mental gymnastics but now that it's affecting parliament, you know, now that now that like a white supremacist attack has actually affected parliament and endangered lawmakers and endangered people like Joe Biden, now we're talking about domestic terrorism as an issue. Now it's an issue that needs to be, you know, clamped down upon and we need to reconsider the way we approach it. But even then, like now it's an issue, but nobody's like they're all really dancing around actually saying that white supremacy and white nationalism are is terrorism. Like, it'll be like, we need more domestic terrorism laws because white supremacy is becoming dangerous. And it's like, no, you need more domestic terrorism laws, or at least you think you do, because white supremacy is terrorism and your most recent president was a white supremacist. Like, that's, there's so much mincing of words. There's so much refusal. Like, this this cognitive dissonance um, when it comes to talking about whiteness and white supremacy and white power um, and white entitlement and then terrorism. And even then, like, let's talk about, you know, increasing, I guess, surveillance, because that's been one of the conversations 
around the aftermath of the capital is we need to give the police more resources. We need to give them stronger surveillance power so that we can make sure this doesn't happen again because clearly the reason that they weren't competent during the capital situation was because they were under-resourced and under-educated. There are so many things wrong with that. The first one being obviously that is not the case because every every I fucking knew that there was going to be a riot as if the police didn't know and I'm literally in Australia. But there is a real... it's. It's actually, like, insidious and dangerous to say that, like, the police are incompetent rather than the fact that they might be in on something or that they might be supporting something. Like, are we really going to call the FBI incompetent for not, like, knowing about this when in reality they probably knew about it and just didn't do anything? Like, it's actually, it's a really damaging idea because what does it imply about previous intelligence and surveillance uh, towards Muslim people? Because even in this country, like in Australia, we have pretty fucking like draconic terrorism laws here, despite the fact that we haven't really had any terrorist attacks here. But after um, the American and the European ones, our government very sneakily introduced a lot of very draconic and fucked up terrorism laws that actually, and I remember writing an article about this in uni, um, but like law professors have said that these actually violate human rights um because under like our domestic terrorism laws in australia you can actually detain somebody indefinitely without a charge which is like fucked up you can detain somebody indefinitely on a suspicion and the problem with these laws is they will never be applied to white people and this is why I have an issue with these ideas now and a lot of, especially like it's coming from a lot of left, like white leftists as well. Are like, see, white supremacy is terrorism. This is why we need stronger terrorism laws. And I'm like, no, because they're going to make stronger terrorism laws uh, and use the capitalistic excuse to do it. And then they're only going to use those laws against Muslims. And they were going to use those laws to terrorize and surveil and, and like attack Muslim people and destroy our communities. We are the ones who are going to bear the brunt of this issue. We didn't fucking do anything. It's what happens already here in Australia. You hear, well, you probably don't hear, but it happens. So many raids against Muslim communities. We are like constantly fucking terrorized by the police in this country. The media never talks about it because they never find anything. Um, but it happens all the fucking time and it's legal under our domestic terror laws that people think we don't use because we don't have terrorism here. It is so insidious. Um, And this is why we can't be, like, pro the state having more power because that seems to be the way that a lot of people think we need to go with the capital is we need to give the state more power, we need to give the police more power in order so that they can subjugate um, white supremacists. But they're not going to fucking subjugate the white supremacists because they are the white supremacists. They're going to use that power to subjugate Black Lives Matter protesters who will now be called terrorists. They're going to use that power to subjugate Muslim people who will be called terrorists, Arabs who will be called terrorists. Anybody who like doesn't support the white supremacist capitalist machine, they're going to be called terrorists and charged under these new and dangerous potential laws. Another element of the debate, uh, to transition out of my fury, uh, was about Twitter uh, deleting Trump's account, basically. like They banned him from Twitter. It's unprecedented for them to take this much action against an individual on Twitter. They initially like blocked his tweets, then they deleted them, then they like removed his videos, and then they actually like banned him off Twitter. Um, and their reason for this was because he was inciting violence uh, and hate speech, and he violated the community guidelines. YouTube and Facebook also pulled like Donald Trump's videos during the riots and stuff, and removed him off their social media uh, sites as well. This has caused like a real mix in reaction from people. Uh, surprisingly so, I think. I didn't expect it. 
But there's been a lot of hysteria post-Trump being removed off these social sites because uh, people are worried that, like, big companies shouldn't have the right to censor alternative voices, even if those voices are inciting violence against the state. Uh, There's this huge debate on this with, like, is it a dangerous precedent that Twitter and whatever other site was able to, to silence Donald Trump so quickly and effectively? You know, is this worrying for our freedom of speech? What does this mean for future political arguments? On the one hand, I think people are like, well... You know, I mean, he did violate their guidelines and they are within their rights because it's like it's a contract. So, like when you sign up to the site, you agree to abide by their rules. And if you like disobey the rules or violate the rules, they have the right to kick you off. Like that is the agreement. The same way that anywhere you go, society has rules that people enact. And if you want to be part of that society, you have to abide by those rules. The same way you can get fired at work for doing other dumb shit. Like it's, you know, just the way it is. And they are like within every right because that is the terms for using their site. Um, so a lot of people are just like, you know what, like, he broke the rules, he pays for it, and that's kind of it. The other side of the debate is, like, is this a step backwards for free speech and is this authoritarian? Like, is this big companies, big corporations under capitalism becoming authoritarian and actually having more power than the fucking government um, in order to control what we can see and what we can, uh, like, engage with? Um, And the idea is kind of just, like, do we trust them to only use this power for good? Do we trust them to only block people who are inciting right-wing uh, rage because now that we've done it to Trump, they can kind of done it, do it to anyone. You know, like who's next? What if next time it's a left wing group inciting violence against a white supremacy state? That's obviously a completely different context, and most leftists would uh, would support that. But if that's also inciting violence, it can also be banned. Something that I find interesting about this kind of real fear that's come up out of a company having the monopoly over freedom of speech is that I just don't think this is like new. It's so I think it's very telling that a lot of the people that are like even because I mean it's fair to be concerned about it like a lot of leftists a lot of white leftists are really concerned about what this means for them if Trump can be banned because they could also be banned right but I just think this is not fucking new people of color like vocal people of color on social media we've been getting banned or shadow banned or deleted since the fucking dawn of social media it's not new for us we're always getting banned like y'all are just so shook because you don't get banned from these sites because you can say whatever the fuck you want but it happens to everybody all the time i've had so many of my facebook comments deleted because they have the word white people in it even if it's like not necessarily like a main comment happens all the time there's um a muslim commentator hanan dover uh, she says a lot of things like in support of the Muslim community and the Palestinian community uh, and the Aboriginal community in particular as well. Um, and her page is literally getting deleted off Facebook like every two weeks. Like she is constantly getting deleted and has to make a new account. Even now I follow like Decolonize uh, on Instagram or like the vegan hip hop movement. Um, and there's like those groups are constantly getting deleted from Instagram and then having to remake their account. They've all got like seven backup accounts because they're just constantly getting deleted off the site for posting like left wing content that isn't even like overly radical. It's just like about the racism that we experience every day. So I just like who who's having these conversations because it ain't me. <laughs> like I'm not like, oh, no, my my rights are going to be taken away now that's the precinct because I don't fucking have those rights. Like it's a privilege in itself to get that far. Um on these social media sites and not get banned. Like, all of us are getting banned all the time. My comments are always getting deleted on Facebook. When I was doing Bachelor commentary and I made a comment about, like, a black woman, like, dominating white women, it got deleted for hate speech. <laughs> like, this is our everyday life. So I just have no interest in this conversation because I don't think it, it really matters to people of colour. Like, welcome to our world. 
I'm not really too interested in making a comment or having an opinion on Donald Trump being banned from Twitter. Uh, because what I'm concerned about is the increasingly pervasive nature of what we call platform capitalism, which is the way in which these big tech companies become to intrude and subsume every aspect of life. And ultimately, what we have is that the, the realm of communication, the realm of the social has been invaded by capitalism. We can't even talk to each other unless we're acting through a capitalist medium, whether it's on Twitter, Facebook, uh, etc. Talking about Donald Trump individually, uh, I don't think it's that important. I think what's important is that we need to find a way to tackle the big tech oligarchy that is invading every aspect of social life. I'm less concerned about one person being banned from Twitter, Donald Trump. Uh, and I'm more concerned that the fact that political discourse seemingly only exists in privatized capitalistic spaces. Yeah, like there's a that conversation is a bigger and more interesting and more relevant uh, conversation, I think. But like, I don't give a fuck about Trump being banned from Twitter. Like every black activist I know has at some point been banned from Twitter. Like it is what it is in that regard. That's just that's they're just finally acting on like actually banning the correct person but they're always banning everybody else. It's not new. I guess to kind of drive home the point that I'm trying to make about all this capital drama is that we really need to be more critical about the way the government handled these things and the way people respond to them. Because, yes, it was white supremacy and white terrorism and all that kind of stuff, but it's like we need to look at the way the government is going to use this as an excuse to have more avenues to further marginalised, oppressed people. Like, that is what is going to happen, and we are seeing it in real time, and we've already seen it happen here in Australia, and it's happening over there in America now. And I just really need people to, like, be more, I guess, sensitive to marginalised people when we talk about it, because you should not be feeling joy at the increased surveillance, the increased kind of powers that we're giving to the state. That is never, ever, ever going to benefit left-wing and marginalized people ever when you exist in opposition to the state and when the state has stakes in white supremacy that oppresses you and capitalism that oppresses you then we never want them to have more power this is not the correct way giving them more authority to fight white supremacists is not what's going to work and i think we really need to be vigilant about that because it's so easy to fall into that kind of complacent idea it's easy it's comforting but we have to stay away from that I think what is also important to note is that what we saw on January 6th was a group of white supremacists trying to break down the institution that enforces and empowers their white supremacy. I mean, in that way, it's a bit amusing and just seeing the sort of the strange incompetency of the the protests and of the riots, I mean. Essentially, what we saw was white supremacists trying to dismantle a white supremacist institution because their favorite white supremacists uh, lost to their least favorite white supremacist and then it's the same white supremacists that we are also relying on to like protect us from other white supremacists it's not going to happen we got to drop that that's over the real power and protection that we have comes from the unity we have with other marginalized people with other working class people with other left-wing people and that's why protests like today are so important that's why they're so important having that unity between us having that respect and love for each other is the only thing we can rely on against, you know, things like white supremacy and capitalism and colonialism, because that shit is not our friend. Never will be. Sweet. Well, thanks for listening. I think now's a good time to talk about our sponsors for the episode, which is you, our listeners. Specifically, we'd like to thank Everett, Beck, Naya, Rachel, Lucia, Sarah, Liz, Belle, and Katie. 
And a special thank you to Katie because I actually ran into her today at the protest and I really enjoyed chatting to her. Hi, Katie, if you're listening. Special thank you to you and to the lovely listeners that um, I talked to in the, in the food court in the city for a while. I had a great chat with you guys. I was really, really lovely to meet some of you. It totally made my day. This is a shout out to you guys. And it makes this feel a bit more real as well. Yeah, look, it's definitely very surreal having people come up to you and like know you. <laughs> um, but it was really nice. So thank you to everybody that actually came and said hi to us today at the protest. Much love for you guys. Much love for you guys. But yeah. Anyway, I'm going to move on with my script. Lol. Uh, if you thought our discussion today was interesting, thought-provoking, or something you learned from, please consider donating to our Patreon at patreon.com forward slash Saliha. If signing up isn't your thing, you can also donate to our PayPal link at paypal.me forward slash Saliha to support future episodes. Both the PayPal and the Patreon links are in my Instagram bio, so check them out over there at Saliha Official and give them a follow if you like today's episode. And follow my Instagram at mitches.miscellanea for discussions around film, music, and books. Also, if you have any comments or suggestions or you want to add to the discussion, you can DM me or email us at podcast at gmail.com and please include your name, pronouns and any other important info. And of course, remember to follow and subscribe. It really helps the podcast get out there. Sweet. Thank you. Bye. Bye. Bye.